out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are. Well, sometimes. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of record producer, guitarist, DJ, and a lot of other things as well. Yes, it is going to be Simon Emerson, or sometimes known as Simon Booth. It's slightly tricky, isn't it? Anyway, he has been in a million bands. Okay, I'm exaggerating, but he started in the late 70s with people like Weekend and also Working Week, the Afro-Celt sound system, as well as working with people like Baba Mull. Anyway, and also Everything But The Girl. God, he's worked with everyone. Anyway, this is... uh, the interview with Simon and after a long chat at the beginning, which has all been edited out because frankly you don't want to hear all that kind of just stuff, we got down to, yes, the early musical influences and uh, this is Simon's response. Simon, it's over to you. At my school, in the the very first kind of music, well, the, the very first music I, 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 I heard, I, I participated in was folk music as a kid. So when I was six, I started going on uh, forest school camps, which is a very kind of progressive. Um, it's kind of people describe it as a scout for hippies, but yes. it was set up by a guy who knew Baden Powell, taught Baden Powell everything he knew, um, which was Native American folklore. He'd hung out with the uh, First Nation, one of the First Nation tribes. And um, and then was appalled when Baden Powell militarized the youth movement, and he was a Quaker, and he set up this organization called the Order of Woodcraft Chivalry, who are a fascinating bunch, and they they pioneered the concept of green education. There was an actual forest school um, in Whitwell Hall, which was where kids would go. I mean, all this is very commonplace now, but kids would go and, and they'd learn be educated out in the woods and blah 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 when I went on that my dad took me I think I might have been younger and it was steeped in the folk tradition so I'd sit around campfires at night and sing you know the Woody Guthrie songbook and that's yes. how I got uh, you know the the kind of civil rights songbook um, all those songs and then from that I got very you know as a as a kid I knew all the songs you know and and and, and we used to do country dancing um at my school uh my school was the first school in London really where skinheads appeared so when I was kind of 12 um I was born in 56 you know rude boys and skinheads was starting to come through and at that stage they hadn't become attached to the far right yeah. So it was very much, it was very much part of the kind of multicultural, the birth of multiculturalism. Um, the school was one of comprehensive. I had a lot of friends, um, you know, across the kind of race spectrum. So Scar and Bluebeat was really important. Uh, I started working at Chelsea Football Club as a young teenager, selling hot dogs and nuts and peanuts Excellent. and things and uh, various other things which I shouldn't really talk about but we were you know we were kind of yeah we were just just cut so 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 Bluebeat and Scar was very important but then my dad a very interesting guy uh, he's dead now but he he was he kind of 
dropped out and became a hippie. And his friend, Sam Cutler, um, became very part, very much part of the English British underground, emergent underground. He managed a band, started a band and managed it called Screw. They were the very first group to play at the Hyde Park concert when the uh, Rolling Stones played, the free concert. Yes. And mm-hmm. so as a kid, I was taken to the Roundhouse and all, all Saints Church in Paris Square. And, and I saw all the bands like the Pink Floyd and Quintessence and Edgar Broughton band, all the kind of early British psychedelic bands. I can't tell you how many times I've seen Hawkwind. Yeah. And Sam Cutler was good mates with the Pink Floyd. So the very first album I got, which I've got next door actually, was Pipe at the Gates of Dawn. And I just, I, I remember that literally changed my life, hearing that. And I gave it to Sam and he said, I'll get this signed um, by the band. And I've probably got the only copy of Pipe at the Gates of Dawn that's been signed by the band when Sid Barrett was in it. Wow. And, and I'm waiting to have a call with Pete Jenner, who manages Billy, Billy Bragg, yes. who was managing them at the time, just to put this into focus. So the first album on my blog will be that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it had a really profound effect. And I, and I listened to it the other day with some, you know, I've still got a lot of my old mates who I used to hang out with. Um, I grew, so, so the house I lived in, my dad was an architect little he built three houses and converted a stable block so there was my mum and dad and then my aunt lived two houses up and then my gran lived in this stable block courtyard so it was a big extended family then over the road was this massive council estate that went all the way down to Southfields and uh my kind of gang used to hang out on on this estate but we were right on the edge of Wimbledon Common so we spent our glorious summers on Wimbledon Common and Richmond Park, um, you know, eventually doing copious quantities of acid, <laughs> as you do, you know, and, and um, listening to, um, you know, the English psychedelia. Um, and then what happened was my dad rented out these offices at the bottom of his garden, and that became the management for the soft machine. And then my and then Robert Wyatt ended up renting my dad's flat. My parents divorced. My dad moved into some flats around the back of uh, where I lived. Um, so at a very young age, I knew Robert Wyatt, and I used to go to see Soft Machine. I remember seeing Robert Wyatt. I remember seeing Soft Machine play. I think the, at the first Reading Rock Festival, and I think Spooky Tooth were on the bill. Anyway. And they started playing, the sound went down, and this happened three times. On the third time, Robert White just completely trashed his drum kit because he was so, so furious. And I just thought that was the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. So did your so dad, very, yeah. I was going to say, did your dad take you or did he go to the, the Alley Pally in 1967 to the 14-hour Technicolor Dream? Where Probably. You know, yes, because yeah. that, yeah. that's become quite famous for the you know Floyd fans and various other people. I know John... I mean, Lund. I thought... I saw the Pink Floyd when before they were famous. So I remember seeing this band doing long, you know, improvisations with 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 the light show, you know, the, and 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 um, and that would have been Power Square. Um, 
I mean, he took me to the Royal Albert Hall when John Lennon and Yoko Ono crawled into a bag <laughs> for world peace. Um, uh, he, I, I, I remember going to the Royal Albert Hall to see the, Jimi Hendrix, Pink Floyd, The Move, The Knife, Here I Apparent, and I still, and I, and I can't find the little poster, but, a, but that's, a, that, that's an amazing bit of rock rock and roll vintage yes probably for all of one pound fifty or two pound or something yeah. you know just one of the greatest lineups of all time god yeah you did yeah. see you ticked it all off didn't you actually so when the 70s you you obviously you're a bit more like my brother's age i suppose so you were sort of much more i'm aware 63 of, yes so he's 62 so yeah or somewhere in that region so so when the 70s sort of crawled in and, and obviously a lot of those people and I've interviewed a lot of people from that 60s period like Joe Boyd and Barry Miles they they obviously had that zeitgeist moment in their life where the next decade the next scene was something that they weren't really part of you know that they they, mm. they were right there in the 60s weren't they but you can't really say you were really doing it in the 70s and and Barry and I did ask Barry you know what happened he said well we were all really tired we were just we just mm. wanted to sleep and it's like oh that's what happened in the 70s with you guys and then someone else takes the baton so obviously what what we it's tired you, of euphemism for stone <laughs> probably needed to sort of go to rehab yeah. really but um and get a life or well, not a life but you know probably have relationships in the home so then it's as, as the 70s you obviously weren't a bit older like 25 but you were still sort of on the way up so how were your 70s then when the world of say a bit of heavy rock and prog rock appeared as well as glam rock well well well, well, well prog we were, we were always into prog i mean you know, it was, uh, I guess our big band was the Soft Machine. We were really into the Canterbury scene. Um, so Hatfield and the North, Henry Cow, Matching Mole. Um, Caravan? Uh, very, into very into jazz, you know, in its kind of jazz rock. Um, uh, not into Genesis at all. Never listened to Genesis. And we listened to, I listened to a lot of Velvet Underground and um, MC5 and the kind of bands, the proto-punk bands. There was a band called Blue Cheer, who not a lot of people know about, but they were the kind of original um, grunge band, you know, and, and they, they, they're worth checking out. But I was much more into the kind of garage, you know, garage, kind of much more political, edgy rock and... Um, um, I mean, obviously, you know, you know, I'm a gummer, you know, things like Saucer Full of Secret and I'm a gummer. The early Floyd was were important because it was weird and experimental. Dark Side of the Moon was a big, we used to, you know, that was a big go-to track. Um, I was really, really into Nick Drake. I'm, I'm pleased to say I was one of the few people who had a Nick Drake record. Excellent. You know, I was one... Yes, we I mean, love Nick it, Drake we? defined my teenage years because I wasn't a happy teenager. Um, I left home really, pretty well when I was 16, 17 um, for all kinds of reasons. Uh, Nick Drake was very important, as was Sid Barrett. Um, and uh, so, so the pre-punk 70s were were important years for me because I guess that would have been, you know, I was struggling at school, I was dyslexic, I was squatting in North London. Um, and 
I was also extremely political as well. You know, I was I I, I was I was the I'd actually got involved in school kids politics and became the president of the National Union of School Students, which which was around in the early 70s and organised protests and strikes and has been kind of documented. But yes, uh, someone's written a book about it, actually, you know. Um, so I um the music was very much um, part of my was was interwoven with my ideology, my desire to change the world. Um, you know the kind of way of coming to terms with being dyslexic in a very large comprehensive school in South London, um, which is also extremely violent. We had the dubious honour of being the first school to have a fatal stabbing which I witnessed. Um, I mean, nowadays it's commonplace. Yeah. Um, and I had bohemian parents, you know, I'd, but my dad was, 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 you know, a, yeah, bohemian intellectual parents. So, and I had this amazing connection with forest school camp. So folk music, Martin Carthy, all that stuff was, you know, I mean, I, it was, was, was very much, what we listen to is alongside all the weirder stuff. Yes. So when, so just before we, I'll come back, but just, just interjecting there, you must have um, spoke to Joe Boyd, who produced probably two of your favourite artists or albums of all time then, because he did, you know, Nick Drake and he also did Pink Floyd, didn't he? Which Pink Floyd album did he do? The f- I think the first one. Did he? Yeah. I, I, didn't, I mean, Joe Boyd's interesting because I, I haven't spoken to him. Um, he he definitely produced the really big albums in my life. I mean, it was you know Nick Drake, Incredible String Band, Fairport Convention. I didn't he, did he do them, but but possibly possibly not. If he did the Pink Floyd, but he was in, incredibly important and pioneered, you know, that kind of experimental. Um, uh, borderless approach to music it was just very weird because i heard him on the radio a few years ago vehemently arguing against fusion you know and uh, and playing these dreadful examples of how world music fails when it fuses other influences and i just remember thinking you know that is just so hypocritical because he, <laughs> he created jazz rock i'm sorry yeah. I'm, folk, I'm folk rock you know I mean? yeah. that was the ultimate fusion i mean the ultimate fusion band were the incredible string band they were the first world music band that's where i started you must have been you must have been shouting at the rate no he produced the first arnold he even produced arnold lane their first single so um arnold lane i remember that yeah yeah okay so, yeah, so that yeah. was his moment i remember seeing that on top of the pops with sid barrett sitting down I, that that was an incredible track yeah i was into the beatles as well i mean you know the the white i mean revolver was a you know my, my dad was a massive music lover i've got yeah. his albums next i've got like an al- al- final collection of four thousand albums so all that stuff um so when did it, you when did you suddenly think in that period that you were going to become a well pick up an instrument and and start to not just listen to music and go to gigs and well the, the, i picked up an instrument when i was 12 and i was taught to play guitar by a guy called sam cutler who's actually written a book and he after that rolling stones free concert he went on to tour manage the rolling stones uh ripped my dad off for a huge sum of money my dad went bankrupt and then he organized altamont 
in America. And he's in the film. He's a Cockney with the handlebar moustache. Right. Going, cool it, guys, you know. And he uh, he made the mistake. Well, he booked the Hells, the Hells Angels used to do the security at all the three day. festivals in England so to protect the, the hippies and the skinheads which is which is what went down in Hyde Park very successfully but of course when he got to America you know the American hens that held that you were very different <laughs> and you know what happened to Altamont yeah, yeah oh god yes we, we've watched that and and cried yeah. really because it's com- completely I mean it's kind of um I know they got the guy in who did Woodstock didn't they to sort of at the last minute who the Kurt guy with the curly hair which I'm not going to be able to remember his name but I remember they were getting all these characters in and the press you know they had that press conference obviously this mm. is 1970 where you know he he looked because he because Woodstock had been a total disaster but luckily they made this amazing film didn't they that they made, made the money look, on the film right but yeah, they made yeah. it look good but I think when I re- recently listened to a documentary I think they had like one food stall and two toilets uh, and no, nothing else uh, was organised. Uh, and you went, it was a complete catastrophe. And they, like, yeah. you know, hundreds of thousand people, no one really knows the number, turned up with all this music. I mean, they were building the stage like three days before. How the fact that they got away with it was just yeah. a miracle. You know, but well, it was, it, was, it was an anything, you know, it was just that kind of, the, the kind of, you know, hippie idea that, you know, any you can literally do anything, you know. And you can do anything, even if you're tripping. You know, it was, it was, it was. But 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 Sam Cutler taught me to play guitar um, uh, when he was managing Screw and staying at my dad's house in Victoria Drive, and and then I discovered a guitarist called John Fay, Fahey, who is a who who plays solo finger picking guitar but in an incredibly kind of um, transcendent way. And hearing him changed my life. I mean, that was really... And funnily enough, my son is massively into him as well. But you sh- if you should check, check John Fay out, check an album out called The Yellow Princess. It's one that it's, it is an amazing album. It's solo guitar. He was a tortured soul, but I used to play, I used to spend hours playing John Fay tunes and, uh, I, I, I never really wanted to sing, and I never wanted to be a virtuoso guitarist. Funnily enough, um, so that was my entry point. But but the absolute single defining moment for me wanting to pick up the guitar was punk rock. Punk rock. So indeed. in nineteen seventy six, I was at Lancaster University, and I, I I was a political activist up there, and and then I. Then punk came along, and it was just tailor made for me. Yes. And I and, and I helped organise the first Rock Against Racism gig actually at Lancaster University with Steel Pulse. Right. So, so my so interestingly, my brother who is probably sixty two, and we're from you know East Anglia. He went to Lancaster University to study. So, were you a student up there at that time? Yeah. Oh right. What's you his name? Not, you would have not Colin Eastall, but you wouldn't have met him. But I don't think. Why not? If we're the same age, you might. Have been. I don't oh, know. I'm 63. Yeah. Well, anyway, he was Lancaster because he had a year in Morecambe. That was the place. You know, I think when you were a student, you have what year? Yeah, in... I, I lived in Bowland College. I, I almost said, what, what, what did he study? He... It was probably in the world that was kind of. He went towards the world of accountancy and stuff like that. Oh, so. I see. So he was quite straight because we, we, 
He was straight, but he was in. He was into his prog rock. God, he was into his prog rock. So yeah, he was so. into his prog rock. Yeah, he, he he might remember me. I mean, we were part. We were just part of the kind of you know campus, you know, kind of obnoxious loudmouth revolution. So, so just roughly, how did you get to university if you dropped out of school at sixteen? Then because because all the universities rejected me. I, I, um, my headmaster, or someone had written, written on my ACA form, don't um, take on this student. He's a political activist. Um, I'd got pottery A-level, because that's... Uh, but I really wanted to go to university. And when I turned up at Lancaster, we, we... I went to the sociology department. It was a group interview. There were all these students fresh out, fresh out of school, never left home. The first question was, are communes an alternative to the nuclear family? And I sort of said, oh, well, I left home at 16 and, you know, I see the nuclear family as this patriarchal institution and I'm currently living in a commune in Camden Town and, you know, and dirty, dirty, dirty. And um, the, the sociologist, the lecturer who, the, who was interviewing me was called Dave Riddell. And then we did one-to-one interviews and I told him about my life and he said, look, we're going to give you an offer you can't refuse. You know, you're exactly the kind of student we want here. You know, we have a quota of students that come from prison and the army and the police force and, and the trade union movement who've got no qualifications. But, you know, we, we're a very radical department and, it, and as it was. And uh, he gave me an offer I couldn't refuse. And, and then a year later, I, I, I turned up at the sociology department went to see Carol, Dave Riddell, knocked on his door and he'd had a sex change and had become Carol Riddell so <laughs> he could have a lesbian relationship with his girlfriend and he was one of the so so basically he he, he and 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 um yeah I mean it was it was quite quite bizarre and he was one of the first um I guess trans activists Yes, he was. He, yeah, I don't, yeah. You know, he was right there. He was. He, he was right there. But but it was, it was, it was an amazing university. I mean, it was, it was very, it was incredible. And I left. I got, when I left the university, I got an upper first Excellent. in sociology, psychology, and philosophy because I did independent studies, and I had help because I was dyslexic. So I basically got to university and. I had this quest for knowledge and it was incredible. I mean, the government was paying me, was giving yes. me a grant to learn. I All the canteens were, spot, were, were, were subsidised. It was like 20p a pint or whatever. <laughs> and I just, and there were all these students freaking out and, you know, and I was so motivated. And um, I got very, very heavily into... Um, you know philosophy and you know blah 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 and I absolutely loved it excellent well, I did have a nervous breakdown I know when Thursday, you know you got the grant but you could sign on do you bizarrely you know you got your tuition fee obviously but you, you could sign on at Christmas Easter the summer holidays you could do you do the Christmas post I, I mean it was you know ha- housing was subsidized it was absolutely amazing I remember turning up and I'd gone from kind of you know working on building sites and squatting in Camden Town and doing kind of manual work to this kind of, you know, um, ivory tower. Well, it's a very strange place, Lancaster University. It's up on the hill. Um, I didn't like the campus, so I, I, I spent a lot of time in town and I moved into town as quickly as I could. 
but it was incredible. And then I went on to do a PhD in the same thing, got a grant. Yeah, didn't finish it. But. <laughs> so look, so during that Lancaster, you, you said you, you put on sort of Rock Against Racism, probably, hopefully you boycotted Barclays Bank as well, because I think that's what I happened. did. I had a, ba- I had a bank, <laughs> I banked with the co-op. And I used to go to town and go, and I, I kept, and when I moved back to London, because when I, see, when I moved back to Camden Town, my squatting community had been um, this 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 bunch of art school students from Leeds had come down, and they were living in Carroll Street. And this this is real kind of punk history, and someone will one day write a book about this. So Karen, who's my partner, who I met in Carroll Carroll Street, who's next door at the moment, probably trying to filter out this because she's heard it all before she lived next to a bunch of Leeds art college kids students and that was pretty pretty that was green guard side right and so I moved came left college came back and then I met green and Tom's pretty pretty at a Martin Carfee gig at Cecil Sharp house and we got talking and you know because basically you never saw punk at folk gigs and Martin Carfee remembers all this <laughs> yes you probably were like god they've come to the wrong gig these are young because no no much. no he knew them he he knew them he the, the, the green and um Lynn his girlfriend at the time they used to follow Martin Carfee around they actually made him part of their art project a big polystyrene ear with a finger in it, you know, doing the folk finger doing in the fingers. So <laughs> did you try just briefly to play uh, Davy Graham's Angie, uh, Angie? Did you? I, you know what? Everybody played that. That was that was the track that, you know, when you were at a party and someone picked up a guitar. Yeah. Uh, everyone, so, 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 you know, I was too cool for Angie, but I, I could Did you play. do Angie? Did you do Needle of Death then? No, I used to play John Fay tracks. Right, so you didn't do, um, and, you didn't do and, Bert Yance then? Uh, Bert Yance, um, there was Needle, the, the Running Away From Home. Um, Bert Yance was sung a lot in Forest School camps, yeah. Yes. And uh, there were some much better guitarists who were slightly older than me, who I'm still in contact with, who, who, who were absolutely jaw-droppingly brilliant. And I used to sit around the campfire and stare at them and... Yeah, I was never really a virtuoso guitarist. I was much more kind of, much more introspective, playing on my own and doing long kind of John Fay type ragas, you know. Yes, listen to Nick Drake's, you know, Heaven in a Wildflower. But, yeah. but look, so, so, so you obviously, you didn't get into a punk band during the late 70s, but then as the 80s I progressed. Did. did you? I did, get, I did. I left university, came down to London, and then I joined Scritty Politi. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Easy, crazy. So, so, so there was the camp. The, 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 you know, we we all had political collections. We'd all grown up in the Uncommunist League, and uh, I joined Scritty Plitty. Um, I did one gig with them when we played with Prague Vec and the Opairs, and I, I was a tape manipulator. I went around recording people in the audience, and then playing back this reel to reel and slowing it down and yeah and I was there when they recorded their first EP Skank Block Bologna. Blimey O'Reilly so that was in the late 78 
78 yeah so you were sort of right in there weren't you so then then sort of because obviously where I joined the party which is actually quite a few years later is buying that first working week album so what happened during that sort of punk to post-punk kind of period for you because obviously there were all these other bands like kind of uh, Weekend wasn't there Young Marble Giants that you sort of Well Weekend I started um, with Alison and Spike. Yes. So, 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 I, I formed a band called Methodiscatune with Ian Penman, who was a journalist. Actually, before that, I formed a band called Stepping Talk, which was a kind of post-punk, very oh, so, weird. So, it's that Ian, that that man, that man, him, yeah, yeah. Oh, is that his book? Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't seen that. Yes. Yeah. Great. What is that? Is that a book he's written? Yeah, it's just a collection of his kind of bits and pieces. It only just came yeah. out in the last 12 months, so you should put it on your list, get it for your I will, person. yeah. Well, well, basically, we were squatting in Camden Town. Uh, I was I, uh, in Bayham Street. Uh, I think I'd also moved up to Archway, and we were also squatting in Regent's Park Road opposite Cecil Sharp House. I can't remember the correct chronology. Formed a band called Stepping Talk, and then that morphed into... Methodiscatune, which Ian was in, because Ian was squatting in Bam Street with us and was part of the kind of scritty plitty bunch of kind of angry young punks. And um, we were all very into jazz, funnily enough, as well as folk. And I remember Ian used to play Eric Dolphy. I was really into John Coltrane. Um, and then I got a job at Mole Jazz, which was a jazz specialist shop in King's Cross quite legendary and I was I was I, I used to surf behind the counter and I used to do the mail order and would listen to jazz all day and I just totally totally got into jazz um I read Art Pepper's biography Straight Life and um I suddenly realized that it was people like Art, Art, people like Art Pepper and um, Chet Baker were the original punks in terms of living on on the outside of society and you know they as well as being incredibly talented and making absolutely sublimely beautiful music but they were kind of working class men who had nothing to to go I mean Chet Baker used to rob petrol stations you know yes when he was on tour and um and i fell in love with latin music and i got into uh astrid gilberto and carla chauvin and i just i don't know what it was but it was something about it and then um i thought wouldn't it be great and i started listening to a lot of african music and got heavily into all the kind of West African Zaire and guitar playing. And I, I, what I loved about it was the fact no one would solo. There would just be these textures of guitar. And, and, and so basically, I somehow got hold of Alison Statton and Spike. Alison had left the Young Marvel Giants. I think it was through Mike Orwave from Cherry Red Records. Right. Mike. Um, and we formed a band called Weekend, and um, and we 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 did our first single called View from Her Room, the first twelve inch, and that became a massive underground twelve inch on the whole kind of soul jazz Latin jazz scene in London at the time. 
and I, I, I and then one day I met a, a DJ came into the shop called Paul Murphy, and we were chatting, and and then he told me that he was playing Views from a Room in this club in Camden Town called the Electric Ballroom, and it was a massive track, and I went there, and it was incredible. It was, I would say, eighty percent young black kids dancing to fusion and you know um latin jazz and it it was it was inspiring and that's uh, and 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 then when weekend split up i started working week as a kind of progression from that i mean the punk thing had kind of become very commercialized and had imploded really yes um, so how did did you start to sort of feel tempted i mean there was you know because because every scene gets kind of grubby like you know you look back at the 60s and say Woodstock as an example I mean that's a festival I know but it was a disaster but everybody not everyone but it it didn't kick off and get unpleasant now you know from being in squats and living in the alternative world that you know everybody's got that idealistic quality and then after a bit you know a few people get attracted whose kind of vibe isn't good they've got sort of motives that aren't great they're not particularly politically in line but they're kind of somehow in the scene and things get a bit grubby don't they we've all been there and suddenly you realize it's the time to leave that scene don't you you know like you've got Woodstock which was you know organized as a complete disaster but no one particularly died I think one person did then you've got Altamont and suddenly it, it gets that energy and a lot of people who I've you know spoke to who lived in squats and been in alternative scenes myself looking back on them you realize it yeah you get that kind of slightly honeymoon period and then you went oh yeah and then a couple of characters turned well, up. well you know the guy who taught me how to play guitar made my dad bankrupt and then went on to organize altamont um and i'd met him on a forest school camp so the guy who used to um look after me when i was six years old on forest school camps and was a kind of beatnik folky then went on to teach me the guitar, then teamed up with my dad, then organised Altamont, which is seen as the death of kind of, you know, hippie idealism in yeah. many ways, what you're talking about. Next to Charles um, Manson. So I was kind of there, you know, I was a child <laughs> of, that, of that transition. Um, one of the things that my dad used to tell me, and my dad was a, a, a very interesting character because he dropped out and went to live in southern Scotland, Dumfrieshire, completely off grid he was a kind of proto green survivalist and he lived in a place called Finnegal which was for years completely off grid so he used to get peat he used to dig his peat for the fire water water from a stream and we and it was like a five mile walk from the road and, and he'd get snowed in for, for months on end I mean yeah but it was inc incredibly exciting uh, he 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 was a Buddhist, and um, over the over the few valleys up was um, Samueling, which was the first Buddhist monastery in 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 Britain. So he went up there, and there were these communities of um, you know hippie survivalists. Well, you you had um, you had Findhorn that started up there, didn't you? They're sort of that was the same 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 kind of people. Yeah, um, that and, was on the west coast. And then in the eighties, I went and had one of those disastrous road trips to uh, Callendish to see the Stone Circles. It was we. Yeah. I was in a relationship which was going bad. It got worse in, in this trip. But we were going to see these Stone Circles on the Isle of Lewis. But we stopped stopped at a place called Drumla Drocket, and there was a guy there that who, again completely off grid called Neil Oram who'd written 
the nine hour play called the orb and you know in the okay in, yeah 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 and, yeah, uh, yeah and so i think a lot of people just kind of yeah. had a feeling and had this cosmic energy ley line well so, so, so absolutely so 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 my dad used to talk for hours and he 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 predicted everything that's happening now i mean he didn't predict it he he, he told me about global warming but he was he was a very he was an intelligent anarchist you know and anarchism is a really misused word because it's 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 generally used to describe chaos you know and 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 and, and lead I mean, what I learned from him was that anarchy is the highest form of order because it's when everyone takes responsibility for their actions. So you don't need leaders because people are looking out for each other. They're watching each other's back. Um, and he said that whenever you've got to realise, you know, never have illusions because you'll get disillusioned. And in all revolutions, in all great periods in history, there's always a period where the people... Who, who are leading the revolution, whether, they, whether they're hippies or whether they're communists, get into power and they sell out. And, 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 and you know, it, money takes over. And basically, you know, as long as you can keep your faith and be independent and outside of power structures, you can, you know, you can somehow survive, which is what he did. And I mean, very, very kind of idealistic. But he, I mean, you know, he walked it as he talked it um so i've never and, and he he got expelled from the communist party in 1956 as my mum did when khrushchev denounced stalin and this is a, a defining moment in, in in the left in britain because up until then most of the left just thought everything that was said about stalin was appalling uh just classic western propaganda and then it turned out to not only be true, but worse. And he, my mum, my mum's got a grey streak in her hair um, because people loved Stalin. You know, he'd, he'd won the Second World War, you know. And he used to talk about that period, you know, in his life. So I was, I, I, I was given very wise advice from a very early age. And I never had those kind of you know um, naive illusions about music or politics which i think is why i still remain very committed now yes you absolutely know. so so as we yes yeah, so the, the punk movements quickly gets a bit sort of like idea oh this isn't really punk this is just people pretending to be punk then you had that post-punk kind of world that but you see i don't accept that because punk you see punk, what punk did is it changed the next face of music it made music accessible to people like me so i had absolutely no desire to be in a prog rock band i didn't want to be a virtuoso guitarist and i didn't even want to be a front person i wanted to make interesting music that was politicized and i wanted to participate i wanted to i wanted to be a player you know in, in both senses of the word and there wasn't you know there wasn't really any way I could do that prior to punk. So, and then Scritchy Pitty came on, came and it was like, we're not interested in technique. We're not interested in, you know, in, in making beautiful music. We wanted to, and, and, and out of that, you know, there was Rough Trade, which was incredibly cool. And I'm, I'm still in contact with Jeff Travis, you know, wrote to him the other day. And it, and it did, those, that side of punk changed the music industry. And 
it's still, you know, those principles and those ideals are still there. They created the 50-50 deal. I run a record label now, which is based on the same kind of deal we did at the day, in the days of rough trade. Mm. I've just tried to sign a deal with the, this American label and they're completely freaked out. They can't do it. There are no contracts, you know. What do you mean a 50-50 deal? It's like, that's, that, that's how I've been surviving in the music industry, you know, what, or how I've tried to. So, so, so the ideals of punk, I mean, people look at, you know, the Sex Pistols or whatever and go, oh, you know, it only lasted three years and then it and then it imploded. Well, actually, it didn't. You know, really didn't. Yes, but <laughs> I agree with you. But there's also things changed. That that sort of early eighties was was kind of a lot of you know you had the mainstream charts, but you did have all the kind of Gang of Four magazine, Peel, that kind of post punk yeah. period, and then sort of that little. Of course, what I put sort of indie down as the years of eighty three to eighty seven, which are the years of the Smiths. It's not a great. It's not a water hundred percent watertight but it's kind of it gives it may it gives it a little bit of a structure but but within that and you mentioned that world that is kind of jazz we we were sort of getting everything like you had the marine girls didn't you then you had everything but the girl and then you had you know i can remember working week with great excitement and i think there was a band called was it hot house or something Mm. Um, but then, but we also, and and you probably hate this, and um, but we also started to get Sade and that kind of mm. new movement. No, I wrote a track with Sade, it's, uh, which has just come out on the Absolute Beginners compilation. Sade was part part of my gang. Yes, I mean what? So what happened was um, Jeff Travis introduced me to Robin Miller, who was a unknown producer, who'd been working in France. And he produced the first weekend album, La Variety. And uh, in fact, the first weekend single was produced by Simon Jeffs from the Penguin Cafe Orchestra, who, who he was equally unknown at the time. And anyway, we met Robin Miller and he just bought Morgan Studios, which became Power Plant in Wilsdon. And he really loved Weekend and we did La Variety. And we were part of this scene, and I knew Ben Watt and Tracy Fawn. Uh, they were friends, and I knew Sade and Robert Elms, who was Sade's boyfriend. And that was, and we all used to go to the Electric Ballroom to hear Paul Murphy DJ, which is where the whole um, Latin jazz dance scene was and anyway I introduced everything but the girl to Robin Miller and I introduced Sade to Robin Miller so there was one year where we finished recording La Variete we had done Weekend Live at Ronnie Scott's which was a gig that where uh, everything but the girl supported us so we so that was a Sunday afternoon gig and Paul Weller was in the audience. <laughs> yes. Paolo Hewitt. And, 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 you know, he went from doing the, he suddenly started, yeah, anyway, that's where I think he probably formed, formed, got, got some of the ideas for the Star Council. And then, and there was a year where Robbie Miller did um, the first weekend album, Working Nights, Eden by Everything But The Girl, and the Sade album. Um, in this, and, 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 and that was a kind of, defining moment if you like for work for that period of musical history and we hadn't no one had defined what we were doing as you know the quiet wave or whatever um yeah 
Yes. Well, I'd, I'd done an interview with Robin, you know, who sort of gave me his life history. And, oh, and, I think you know it all. <laughs> well, I don't know. I probably can't remember. <laughs> don't yeah. test don't test on test me on it, but I, I kind of realised because he then went on to do some kind of world music stuff from um, God, I can't remember the artist actually because it Brundy was around Boys. that time. Pardon? He did, he did the Brundy Boys. That's oh the Bundu Boys. Bundu Boys, the yeah, second yeah. album because I got the first album, Shalina, yeah. yeah, yeah. which obviously John Peel had absolutely sort of played to death and yeah. saw them several times in Norwich and Glastonbury Festival. So were you? I mean, at that point, you know, when then say working week we're developing I mean music gets quite tribal at that stage don't you doesn't it because because you had sort of for me I remember sort of growing up in an area where you know it was quite you know like you couldn't say anything about status quo because you'd get beaten up so you know when people like the beat happened the mod you know you had to pretend you didn't like them because you just just got thumped really and, and kicked a few times so it's, music gets quite tribal and then you've got that kind of slightly you know that that indie pop world and then you had that Trevor Horn production sound that was kind of in the charts and then you had your scene that was kind of developing as well so did you feel because I know when her and Sade say that I think her first single was when am I going to make a living it was because that mm. she was just living in squats and were completely broke so did you feel part of a kind of community of people at that stage yeah 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 I mean we were they were all mates you know we used to hang out together we used to you know, the uh, when I signed to um, Virgin Records, I, you know, I had a record deal, and I was living in a council flat in Kings Cross, <coughs> off the Maiden Lane Estate, um, just above where all the redevelopment happened. Um, if in fact, if you see the film High Hopes, um, Mike Lee, uh, Mike Lee, yeah, that's that. That was the area overlooking there, you know. Or, or, and um, I'd peak, I'd a grant because I was doing a PhD, and for the first time, I mean, I was wealthy, you know. I was living in a council flat, you know, and and myself and Karen, we used to spend four, five, five days a week in Soho. Uh, from Monday to Thursday, you could get into Ronnie's for a quid or something if you had an MU card. Yes. So we'd go into town, watch a film, uh, go and see the first set of Ronnie's, um, and then, or, or, or go to the Wag Club where we'd meet up with, and we'd get in for nothing because we knew Chris Sullivan, meet up with, you know, uh, Robert Elms, Sade would be there. Um, chatting Ooh. away, and is then that, we'd go and catch the second set at Ronnie Scott's. Is so that I Chris, got to see all the jazz greats. Is that Chris Sullivan? Yeah, that's the Chris Sullivan. Yeah, that's yeah, Chris. that's him. Yeah. God, you yeah. basically work with lots of people who've written books, haven't you? Now. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people have said that. That's why I'm gonna. That's why I want to do my blog because. <laughs> <laughs> Blimey, yeah. you're doing really well, aren't you? So look, when you started your, your working week, so this is kind of, I mean, to be honest, this is when I sort of got the album and was like, God, right, I've discovered a new band. Because it's important when you're young to sort of feel like you're, you've discovered a new band. Did you sort of feel there was magic when, when, the, when you got together with, um, with uh, yes, the three of you? Well, Juliet joined a bit later. Larry, I'd worked with Larry in Weekend, so 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 he he and and and, and we got to work with um, Harry Beckett, and these guys were legendary. You know, um, they were. I, I just could not believe I was working with these musicians. You know, because you know I, I grew up with listening 
the the British jazz scene was very progressive. You know, I went to, you know, there's people like Keith Tippett, who very sadly died. Keith and Julie Tippett. I'm, Julie became a friend. Robert Wyatt, people like that. They were heroes of mine. So when we recorded Ben Seramus to, I mean, you know, Tracy Form was a friend, but to get Robert Wyatt to sing on that, I, I, it was... I mean, as far as I've concerned, it was all over. You know, <laughs> that, that, that I could, I could never, ever, ever um, surpass that in terms of my, as a career highlight. And Vince Amos, the first twelve-inch, was made for this these group of kind of jazz dancers called IGJ. I danced jazz, so I knew because they wanted a, a fast Latin jazz track to dance to, and it was made for the Chile Solidarity campaign. I didn't, and Jeff Travis originally funded it. I didn't at the time think it would turn into a band, let alone a genre defying movement. But that's kind of been the story of my life. Yes. I mean, I, 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 I could have said the same about Weekend. Certainly, the first Acid Jazz album I produced was Giles. I had no idea Acid Jazz would take off and become a genre, you know. And certainly, the first. Africa album um I had absolutely no idea I mean I just thought you know that would be destined to obscurity because you know nobody was particularly into world music let alone fusing Celtic folk and West African stuff so so I don't know right place in the, you know right place at the right time so how did you meet Juliet when did when did she sort of well, appear she she was on the scene, so I was, she was part of the London soul scene, and we wanted a singer. We'd worked with Corin Jury from Swing Out Sister, who, who who who's a fantastic singer, but I I really wanted a kind of much more soul voice. I'd written Sweet Nothing basically. I'd written this track mm-hmm. Sweet Nothing, which 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 was 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 a tribute to kind of deep soul and. And Juliet came along and she was a young Labrick Grove soul girl. And I remember turning up in the studio and she just did it. I mean, it was literally, you know, first take. It was extraordinary. Um, and we were told, we were told by people in the record company, you can't have um, a black soul singer, you know, a, a, an edgy London political punk and a, and a jazz artist in a band together it won't work i mean we were t- we were told that by an american head of the american a&r company it's like right. you guys what are you doing you know we can't market <laughs> you and how wrong they were <laughs> yes so can you because this was kind of 85 and obviously um 80, a bit earlier actually 83 yeah but 85 yeah. is when you when you would have bought the album yeah yes that came out and i think it included a 12 inch single in it actually it did well. with with um Jalal from The Last Poets. Yeah. Jesus Christ, I should have got it. I've got it somewhere. It's amazing record, that, actually, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So can you, re- can you, what was your experience? Because you were on Virgin Records, which, um, yes, a lot of people have sort of mixed experiences with Virgin Records. And, you you know, you did sort of capture the essence of the band almost the same way that Shardy's first album did, you know, which was kind of kind of perfection, really, wasn't it? Did it, did it feel like that when you were recording it? No. No, it didn't. We were, we 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 were blissfully unaware of what we were doing. Um, blissfully unaware of what was going to happen. Which I think most great music is made. Uh, you know, the, all the great music that's made at the inception of a of a, of, of a sort of a style or a genre 
all the best music that's made at the inception of the of style of genre is made without any kind of awareness or knowledge of what what's going to happen. I think punk's an exception because I think Malcolm McLaren took you know quite deliberately pieced together you know uh, a master plan. You know, let's take the New York Dolls and let's take this and that. So so I think that was quite contrived. Yes. Um, less so with the clash you know but but, but, we'd, but we'd got Di- diamond life had been out hadn't it and sold a billion millions um so did you sort of think oh blimey we you know there is this kind of robin miller saw the potential in working week realized that we were just a bit too weird and left field you know that we were destined to be one of those kind of cult bands that you know realized we were never going to have a hit single he he really did try, you know, and every time he tried just to push us towards a seven inch, we'd go, oh, God, that's a bit too, you know, can't, can't we have a kind of 10 minute trumpet solo? <laughs> 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 you know, and and then when Sade came along, you know, they were hungry for it. You know, they really wanted to be hugely successful. And uh, I remember the first thing he did was sat their drummer, actually, you know, um, which caused consternation in the band. But he basically said, look, you've got two paths. You know, you've got the path where you can be a super hit underground London club band or, or you could go all the way and become international stars. And that's the path they took. And um, it was quite amazing. I mean, he had the vision and the confidence um, he did something which is one of the nicest things anyone's ever done for me in my life, in my career in the music industry. He called me into his office one day and in the corner of his office was a white Gibson semi-acoustic guitar. I've forgotten the model, the one that Pat Metheny played. Right. And I think at that time it was like two and a half grand, which is a lot of money, you know. And he said, what do you think of that guitar? I said, oh, you know, I've, got, I've always wanted a guitar like that. There's actually a photograph of me with it in a press shop. And he said, it's yours. And I said, oh, you know, he said, oh, look, you know, I'd love to play it. Um, he said, no, no, you can have it. And I'm going, uh, you know, Martin, you can't give me that. And he said, it's yours. You have no idea how much money I'm going to make because you know, of my relationship with you, the fact you've introduced me to Sade and everything but the girl, I'm about to become a multi-millionaire over the next few years. And that's my way of saying thank you. Isn't that incredible? I mean, what an amazing guy, you know. Um, Absolute diamond, you know, diamond life, diamond geezer. Diamond geezer. Um, But you must have been, did you feel like... Because, you know, as I mentioned, sort of coming from Norwich, it felt like a million miles away from the cool That's club where Impediment's from. Norwich. Is it? <laughs> right. <laughs> but that feels like a million miles away from the, the London club jazz wag scene and the face and the Blitz kids. Mm. And so you had, you know, the Sade on the, you know, the cover of the face every mm. time, every month, well, kind of. But, you know, it, you know, she was just so beautiful and untouchable and there was all this cool jazz and stuff. So you can see why an indie kid like me went, oh, the, the Smiths and Morrissey and and sort of being a bit hopeless and rubbish. So, you know, whereas, because looking at your scene, I know from reality it wasn't like that, but you can see why people must have looked. Yeah, but some of it was. I mean, some of it was incredibly 
appallingly elitist. Yeah. I mean, okay. So the first three times we tried to get into the WAG club, they wouldn't let us in. I was with Larry. And then a month later, we sold the place out and we were on stage playing. <laughs> I mean, it's just, um, Nile Rogers um, says the same thing about Chic. You know, they tried to get into, what was it called? The, the very, yeah, that one. And he couldn't get, you know, and, 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 and uh, Freak Out was actually originally called Fuck Off. <laughs> <laughs> you not, have you not heard this story? I think I have, yes. I and think then, and then, you know, and then within a year, they, 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 their record was the biggest record in the club. So, so there was some very, I mean, there was a very elitist. Uh, have a look at the Venceramus video that we did with Julian Temple. And that's all about not getting into the WAG club, being barred. And then, and then, um, Six months later, the dancers on the on the on the cover of the face. Yes. So you know, um, that there was yeah, there was aspects of that culture that were appallingly elitist. Um, uh, so I'm not going to deny that. Um, yeah, no. But then look, look what's happened to Morrissey. You know, I know it's, it's my my brother went to Manchester University. He was in a band called Dislocation Dance, and he helped start the, the Manchester Musicians Collective, and he was part of that whole Manchester post-punk scene. So I had very strong links with all that, you know. And I'm he he. I remember hearing the Smiths. I never really liked the Smiths. I'm afraid. There was never a band that did it for me. Um, so I didn't shed a tear when uh, Morrissey turned out to actually be a Nazi. <laughs> a Nazi loving. Uh, oh, the last, I know. It's, it's, but, it's all but, part but of it. The, Ma- the Manchester scene was amazing. You know, the Manchester scene, you know, has its own history and trajectory, you know. and the, uh, But that, that period in London, um, I thought, you know, it was what I what I liked about it was it brought together Larry's generation and it brought in it was the birth of world music. Yes. You well, know, world I'm... music is theoretically was invented as a term in 86. Um, I wasn't there, um, you know, in, in, in spirit or actually in person. And I hated the term. And prior to that, we were mixing things up, you know, fusing music, bringing together Bosco, playing percussion with Sade, working week. There was a band called Onwards International, which had all the all the all the kind of, you know, world music, what became world music players from London in it. There was Orchestra Jazeera, who was Ben Mendelssohn's band, who I used to see all the time. and. Um, so it wasn't just, um, you know, cocktails and padded <laughs> shoulders and wedge hair. Yes, I know. And, and Sade's amazing complexion. Sade, you know, Sade was, uh, she was, she was really lovely, down to earth, working class girl, you know. And, 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 and I suspect the reason she, and also very private, and I suspect the reason <clears throat> she kind of disappeared was she... She was never really comfortable with the the deep the role of the diva. I yes. really liked Sade. I really really liked her. I thought she was a great, really great person. Um, yes. 
Well, it was amazing because at that time, you know, you had Liz Fraser and the Copto twins who probably also yeah. didn't enjoy that attention from the indie kids. And then you had Shade, who was this kind of like... And you had uh, Alison Statton as well. Yes. Alison, you know, I mean, she, her last gig was live at Ronnie's and then she had a breakdown and didn't really, you know, left the music industry for all intents and purposes. You know. It happens. But look, having done this, uh, done, done, done this show for a long time, most bands have a five-year narrative, as you kind of imagine. You know, from, from, from what I normally do is, the, you know, they get together, they make a bit of a sound. And this is like the John Peel, you know, world, I suppose, a lot of the time where he'd give a, a, a sort of a play, they get John Peel session, the first album, things going quite well. And... Um, and then, you know, this tricky second album. And if any band ever goes to America, they seem to come back broken. So what, how did the work, you know, working week did get to... We went to America and we came back broken. <laughs> we went to America to make our third album and we were sent over there and that was going to be our big crossover album. And it was amazing. We were in New York. We were recording in the Electric Ladyland studio with all these legends of jazz funk. And we did a cover of... a. a Oh, I can't remember now. Uh, anyway, we did. We did the. We tried to do the big American crossover hit, and I remember sitting in the offices in London, um, in Notting Hill Gate, where Virgin were, and the head of the A and R for the American company turned up and went, "You know, I can't work with you guys. You know, you've got a black singer, you've got a white jazzer." You know, who are you? You're from a punk background. This stuff just doesn't work in America. You know, we've got our R&B station. We've got smooth jazz. Now, Sade, and I, and I just realised that we were a lost cause, you know. that, And that, that was kind of empowering in a way because suddenly it was like, yeah, we're a multicultural band. Yeah, fuck you. <laughs> this, is, this is my life, you know. And at that point, we hadn't really defined ourselves like that. You know, we hadn't kind of sat there and gone, you know, we represent multicultural England but we did you know yeah yes so but that was you, the end really so did you yeah. all sit down and have a conversation or did you just not turn up at a rehearsal one day no we, uh, Juliet left soon after that and then and then and then um, we made another album um, came out with a great album called Fire in the Mountain with Julie Tippett who who was Larry's friend um, Larry's oldest friend was Keith Tippett yes you know they they, they were school school kid friends and we made that album independently uh oh no we did we did an album after surrender we did an album with a singer called Yvonne Waits which was a a kind of acid jazzy kind of album um Giles Peterson was my lodger okay right. so 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 <laughs> that's why I made my book Giles Peterson was my lodger he, I think I did the very first interview ever with Giles when he used to broadcast from his garden shed somewhere in South London. And I got to meet Giles because my mum taught him at Yule College. Right. Um, so, so Giles was, a, you know, moved in, was just starting to DJ. And, and then all of his mates like Chris Bangs and... Um, Bob Jones, all these legendary DJs, um, used to come round, and then Acid House happened, and then and then we start, then we made those Acid Jazz records, yeah. Yes, but be, because the, the you know because I know you weren't part of that indie scene, but you know what? Well, I kind of was because because I was part of the indie scene 
in the late 70s. So bands like Method Discatune and Stepping Talk, you know, Ste- um, Stepping Talk, Method Discatune was with Ian and we played, we did one or two gigs, but we did one gig supporting The Fall. Right, excellent. You know, so, so, so that post-punk indie scene, you know, very much part of that, and as, yeah. my, as, as indeed my brother was, yeah. And then, because then, you know, like a, a lot of those indie bands from the 80s, around 87, Ecstasy appears, and it's like suddenly everyone wants the Happy Monday, Stone Roses, Primal Scream. And so a lot of people go, oh, God, we're just jingly pop. We've been doing it for five years. We've got no money. We've all fallen out. That's the end of it. And that scene comes, and then you had the grunge scene, and then then you had the Britpop world. And then you sort of come back, don't you, after Working Week with another musical lineup, which is quite amazing with, um, yes, the Afro-Celt sound system, which I do... Well, I did, I, did, I did the two first two Acid Jazz albums between that. Yes. Acid Jazz and Other Illicit Grooves. The, the, the link in the indie scene that you haven't mentioned is bands like Certain Ratio, um, who, yeah. who, who uh, th- there were a lot of Manchester indie bands who were getting into the kind of New York loft, no way jazz. And, and, and um, they were very important. So, and, and working week was seen as an indie band. I mean, we used to have indie kids turning up at our gigs. So we, we were, and also the link with everything but the girl and Tracy Ford. Well, yes. I mean, they, they went from being the most kind of like, I don't know, sort of, I don't know, jazzy kind of production-wise, not very high to suddenly sort of having that massive hit and then suddenly becoming global stars. And um, so there was, there was, you know, there was a, there was crossover. You know, it wasn't. I don't. I said. I mean, obviously, for you living up in Ipswich, Ipswich or Norwich, Norwich. That is where you're. Yeah, Norwich in Norwich, <clears throat> reading the NME, um, it would have been a lot more compartmentalised. You know, and. Unfortunately, the you know I mean this is being written about, but the 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 British music press loved to put things everyone in their compartments, and so they could create genres to knock them down, and it was extremely frustrating at the time. Unlike yeah. Ian Penman, actually, I would I think is still one of our greatest music journalists because yes. <clears throat> he subverted all that. But um, so so that anyway, yeah. So so after working week and around the same time, I did the two acid jazz albums. But I wasn't comfortable with acid jazz um, largely because I was a bit bit too old, and they they saw me as this kind of bit of a has been. And all bands like you know Galliano and the Young Disciples, hit young Turks, you know, wanting to make create their own scene. So I kind of I kind of sulked off and you know when it's all over for me you know that's the end of my career you know I'm, I'm never going to work again in the music industry kind of thing and then I got a phone call from Jumbo now I got a phone call from Manad Bango's people and, and Manad Bango had heard the Acid Jazz albums and went I love what this guy's doing I want him to produce my next album yes so I did Polysonic a couple of months ago, I was on Giles's show actually talking about it. Um, it was it was great. I did a long interview tribute to Mana de Bango, and then Jumbo uh, Mango Records heard it and mm. linked me up with Babamal. And then in in working with Babamal in Africa, I had the epiphany that became the Africa. 
right it all makes yeah. an amazing uh, Baba Mal album that I got in the mid 90s where he'd collaborated with it was a, something Sikh something um but it was kind of very kind of light and it was very sort of mm. atmospheric and sort of quite chilled out so 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 going to your Afro-Celt did that feel like an amazing experience to suddenly be, you know, in another band again? Did you have the energy? In- but it wasn't really a band. It was a, it was a collective. It was a concept. You know, I, the Afrocults was originally, the original idea was, it was like, you know, one of those kind of Bill Laswell projects. Yes. <laughs> like, you know, he had material. It was a bringing together um, traditional music from the West with traditional music from West Africa, you know, traditional music from from from, from the kind of Celtic diaspora, yeah, um, and uh, it was actually Davy Spillane who gave me the idea. Who's this renowned Irish Ilan Piper, low whistle player, because um, he played on the first Babamal track I recorded. There's a long story here, which difficult to summarise, um, but. Uh, and it all comes back to punk because I'd linked up with Jamie Reed, right? Who was a Sex Pistols artist who had painted up the studio where we were working. So I sent him some of the music and I said, I, I, "There's this amazing link between the ancient music of Ireland and West Africa." And Davy Spillane has played on this track, and I love the artwork you're doing. And it was so inspiring having it in the studio while we were mixing it. And he sent me back a bit of artwork with a lion and a unicorn and with the word sound magic on it. And um, I said to him, I'm thinking of doing a project called the Afrocelt Sound System because the idea was it was a sound system. It wasn't yes. a band. Um, you know, it, it was based on the kind of reggae sound systems I used to go to. So, 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 and then, and then, um, and then it kind of took on momentum from there, largely because of Real World Records and Peter Gable giving me the opportunity to make the record. Yes, well, I know. Well, well you, you know, you were sort of talking about 86 being that year where world music became a big thing. And I do remember, you know, that excitement of the Bundu boys and then people like the Four Brothers and Thomas McFumo and the Blacks Unlimited. But then also at that time, we had the, the Paul Simon Graceland's album, which kind of mm. came out probably that year, which, which suddenly opened up that lady, um, Blacksmith Mambuzu. I remember quite now but yeah so, lady lady yeah 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 sorry the band yeah the band. vocal group yeah the, so, um, so it all became pines so, tomato soup advert people yeah so, <laughs> so so it was kind of interesting so when you when the afro celt sound system started did that feel because at that stage we'd had the sort of we were into john major years and things were slowly changing until we got to new labor and then there was brit pop and this kind of great excitement so did you feel that you were a little bit on that vibe? Because in the 80s, you mentioned Red Wedge and, mm. and we'd had the Falkland crisis and then the miners' um, strike, which had been horrendous in the country. Then the Red Wedge movement, which had been sort of quite an interesting sort of kind of experience and experiment that, um, you know, people tried to get young folk. So did you feel that things had changed quite a lot for you in the 90s? Um, well... For me, so what happened was I thought my career was over um, after the first two Acid Jazz albums. It was it was quite obvious that 
the people you know who I was hanging out with you know I mean they were they didn't want to work with me basically they wanted to work with their own you know they, they were younger they wanted to create something new and fresh and working week were a bit old of you know just kind of you know I'd had my moment basically and looking back I think that was completely fair enough because every generation that comes through has to define themselves and at the time I was pretty I was you know heartbroken you know I mean really but and, and, and I bought a house um in um Clissell Park and it was a factory years and interest rates had gone up to 12 percent. i lost it couldn't um the manager mango album i'd made um the record company gone bankrupt so they didn't pay me and i had to sell the house i just had had, had my son was we just had ted um so myself and karen and ted moved back to my mum's and i were it was really dark times for me and then we found somewhere to live in hackney again and I got a phone call from an advertising agency who'd heard the Acid Jazz album and really liked it, the second one. And I did an ad called a Just Juice ad and it won an award. And then suddenly I was in the world of advertising. And I think in two, two years, I made more money in those two years than I told him up for the rest of my career, basically. I mean, it was just ridiculous, the amount of money um, around at the time. And I was friends with Phil Saatchi. He was the youngest Saatchi brother, a really nice guy. And I remember going to Saatchi Saatchi, the agency, and going for lunch at Brown's Restaurant with the creative director of Saatchi Agency and talking to him about starting a jingle company and linking in and doing all this. And I'd done a lot of big, high-profile ads at the time. And I went home and I just thought, oh, my God, you know, do I want to be that guy, you know, the guy who, who's made, you know, who's on a six-figure salary and highly stressed and doing ads. And the ads that I'd done were very left-field and weird and wonderful. And then I got the phone call from Jumbo to go to Africa, to work with Bavamal. And what happened was I, I then I then dropped everything and signed on, funnily enough. So there was a period for six months where I was unemployed because and, and basically walked away from the world of advertising um, and went to Africa and met Bavamal and it and it changed my life. I mean it really did change my life. It changed changed my life musically, but probably more importantly, it changed my life spiritually. Um, and that's another story, but yes. it was very, very profound, you know, really so, profound. So with that Baba Mal, because that was, uh, I just had a look at it, it was 1992, the album he did, or 91, was with, um, oh, it was actually 89, Jesus. It was 89. Man, it was with Mansoul Seek. Um, he did a Mansour collaboration. Seek, yeah. Seek. So, yes, that was the time when I, and then he did another one follow-up. So when did you work with him? Well, I did I did an album called Lamb. I did four tracks on Lam Toro, yeah, which which was the out, and there's a track on that called Dandelenol, which has Davy Splan on it, and that is pretty well the point, the seed of the Afrocelts. And then I went back and I did Firing in Futa. Right. Firing in Futa is the one that got the Grammy nomination, and that's got Jar Wobble on it, right? 
Darwin's an interesting guy because our, our careers, he, he's probably one of the musicians I respect the most. And we have very, very, very similar kind of careers in terms of starting off in punk and then getting into, you know, experimental post-punk and then world music. Yes, absolutely. Because yes, the, so what did you with the Afro Kel? I remember you picked up quite an audience of people who, a real festy crowd, didn't you? With dreadlocks. Well, that was through Womad, yeah. Festival favourites. Fe- Festival. Um, I mean, I mean, world, world music was derided by you know the hit British press. It was, it was, it was a term I never brought into, and I just found it extraordinary. You know, when 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 I was la- we were labelled with this term and then kind of dismissed at the same time. It was when we went to Af- America that world music had a very very different. Uh, you know, they the, the, they didn't have the prejudice. So when we played in Seattle, Pearl Jam turned up. You know, and 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 we had fans. We had you know um, Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails, who oh, I was right. a massive fan of. He, 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 you know, it, it, was a, it was kind of a, a very different audience. I mean, yeah, we played at the Fillmore East and it was absolutely full of old hippies. And yes. when we walked on stage, everyone was throwing joints on the stage like they used to do. I mean, it was, it was just awesome. You know? Yes. Um, so do you, did that kind of save your life in a way, you know, the, that, that sort of period? From yeah, the... yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, 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 it, it got me back into the music industry. Yeah, yeah. Bab- from Mano de Mango to Babamal to the Afro-Celts. Absolutely, yeah. I could imagine so, so, so my, yeah. the, festi- the festival favourites that, that, that was. Because you did also have people like, you know, Soul to Soul had sort of come together, hadn't they? And sort of had created a, a soundtrack as well, sort of in the 80s. So there was a lot of kind of... Told Soul up the road in Finsbury Park. So, so I well, we I lived very near where Jazzy B lived. So there was that North North London vibe, and they used to go down to Swan Yard Studios where we were based. And apparently, he like he he, he used to like working with. And there was the African Africa Centre yes. DJ sessions. I mean, that's just London sound system culture, which yes. is utterly awesome. And um, kind of, I got into back in the day, you know, when at, you know, community festivals and gigs in the in the mid seventies, late seventies, when there was always a little gaggle of punks standing around the reggae sound system, and I'd be one of those. <laughs> yes, often with a small child on someone's shoulder in front of a bass bin. You think you've got yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So look, because you're amazing. I mean, you've still got the band the collective together, haven't you? And you're still creating. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, what was quite fascinating then is. I mean, if you could say something or could have said something to your an eighteen year old self, I wondered what that would be because your your kind of history in music is quite kind of unique compared to anybody else I ever spoke to. Is it? I don't know if it is. Is it? Well, yeah, no, know, because, I mean... no, because a lot of people don't. They have that one shot sometimes. I mean, it's a bit kind of sweeping, but they have that moment and they never quite get it. Whereas you had that, but then you had something that's even bigger. And it lasts kind of a lot more longer. And but, has... but it, I mean, I, you know, I've never made a pack of money, load of money, you know, and I've been points. I mean, okay, so we haven't even talked about the Imagine Village yet. <laughs> no, we <laughs> haven't. <laughs> but 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 you know, at the end of the Imagine Village, you know, I was desperately broke again. I mean, I've never made a pack of money. Um, the vast majority of people in the music industry don't know who I am. 
um, Simon, I was because that doesn't help the fact that I call myself Simon Poo. And most of, um, I think the biggest band I was in was definitely the Africans. I mean, they were a household name in America. You know, we 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 played on the Conan O'Brien show and David Letterman. I mean, it was um, you know we had a massive hit with Peter Gabriel. But I don't think um, I'm just a gigging record producer musician. Yes, but you've you, basically. You... I mean. I mean, okay, the Imagine Village, it's an amazing collective. And I did sort of talk to dear old, is it Martin Atkins, who was in Peel as the drummer, who'd worked with um, Jar Wobble as well at that sort of early ages yeah. period. And he's kind of in certain collectives as well, which he's he's um, got together and works with hundreds of people. So with the Imagine Village, is a sort of very similar thing that you've kind of got a different artist for virtually every song. So what was your experience of putting that together like? Well, it was a lot easier than the Africans. A lot nicer people. <laughs> Martin Carthy, he's a legend. He's a wise old druid. Um, uh, English folk seem much more collaborative and much... didn't have the kind of horrific egos um, that there were in the Afro-Celts um, or in the Irish traditional scene. And I think, you know, if I, I, was, I was blissfully naive, to put it that way, uh, about the Irish music scene. The Irish musicians I work with now are awesome. You know, they're, they're the next generation. But at the time of the Afro-Celts starting, I wasn't really aware that it was... I guess it was full of a lot of people who made a huge amount of money. I mean, really, you know, there was the river dancing going on. And then there was a lot of people who, who, who'd grown up with the people who'd made a huge amount of money who weren't making anything, yeah. you know, and I think that creates a lot of problems, you know, um, uh, imagine village was lovely. I mean, all the folkies, you know, they're, they're much more, cooperative collaborative you know there's an ethos there where you know you you watch each other's backs i mean i don't want to sound idealistic um, martin carthy was great liza was awesome so it was it was a lot lot easier and bear in mind that was the first imagine village album i had transglobal underground involved and tung so yes. so, so people see it as my record but tung produced the track transglobal did um and it was similar concept to what I thought the Africans was going to be, you know, a collective of producers coming together around a concept and making music. Similar trajectory, we then turned into a band and we then went out and toured it. Um, very, very proud of it. I mean, the highlight to me was probably when we did Tam Lin at Cambridge and we had the screen behind us. It's on YouTube, you should check right, it out. I will, I will have a look. And, and there's Benjamin Zephaniah um reciting the poem and we're playing along and it was a it was a massive achievement for uh, i mean these days screens are everywhere but to actually have the screen synced up with us playing the whole thing was quite yeah it was right on the cutting edge of what people could do live um and i loved it because really the imagine village was me returning to my own roots right. going back to the six-year-old boy around the campfire listening to people you know singing playing angie singing needle of death by bert yanks you know um david graham and all you know the woody woody guffrey songbook um pete seeger 
<coughs> and most importantly, Martin Carthy. Yes. So who there was. I must the, have seen. I was just going to yeah. say because the last track on that album, you collaborate with Tiger Moth. Now I suddenly remembered that the first album that is. We did another two. Yeah. Yes. So I remember sort of buying a Tiger Moth album back in 1990. It was, it was reviewed in Folk Roots as the album of the week, but then. I never liked That's it. a bit naughty because Ian Anderson, he's the editor of Folk Roots. And, it's and I band. didn't know that until years later. Someone had yeah. sort of realised that he'd given himself the album of the week. Yeah. So I'd slightly, oh, I must go and buy that because it's going to be the best album. And I was a bit disappointed. So that is the yeah. same Tiger Moth then, is it? It is, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, oh. Ian, An- Ian Anderson's a friend and he was he was very... Um, so, so the Afrocults took off and then people like Johnny Kelsey, he was in the Afrocults and... Shima Mukherjee, he was in Transglobal Underground. They kept saying to me, you know, why, why don't you, why, what's wrong with English traditional music? You know, why is everything Celtic, Celtic this and Celtic that? And, 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 you know, why have I got a blind spot to it? You know, and I, to which I replied, I haven't got a blind spot to it. I grew up with it. You know, it was, yes, it was my entry point into music. It was, it was my, it was my first love. So, and then Ian Anderson said, you know, well, you've got to do a similar thing, you know, that you've done with the Afrocals um, and take the traditional English songbook. Originally, we were going to base it around the Copper family. Um, and, uh, but, but we ended up, you know, um, Shima was always, had always wanted to play with Martin, Dirty Dirty Dirty. Um, Transglobal Underground had already done the backing track for Cold Haley Rainy Night. And slowly, it, well, it actually came together very fast. Um, it, it was a tiny budget from Real World. Um, uh, got Billy Bragg along. So, and it was lovely. And, 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 and then a similar thing happened to Working Week, actually. And then suddenly everyone started going, oh, Simon's done a kind of multicultural collaboration that ce- celebrates multicultural, you know, English roots music. And, and I was si- sitting there thinking, no, I haven't. Well, just because, you know, my mate Johnny Kelsey, I've been playing with for the last 10 years on the album, and Shima Mukherjee, I know, you know, that doesn't mean I've kind of gone up to them and gone, right, I'm putting a multicultural band together. <laughs> I need a, you know, what I mean? yes, I know. It, it's another it, case of kind of having my life defined for me. Yes, you know? by some market. But then, as, as can I remember doing an interview with a few people, a member of Jethro Tull and also Barkley James Harvest, but bands that are kind of famous for sort of slightly splitting in two. You also had a similar experience though with the Afro Celts, didn't you? We did. Yes. We had an absolutely horrific court case, which was the worst period in my life. And uh, um, that's another story, which at, at one point I will tell. <laughs> um, uh, the worst thing about it was two people who I'd shared everything with when I started the brand. I brought them into the partnership you know, split all my royalties, helped them out, basically tried to steal the band off me and Johnny and Martin. And um, they were excluding me from the creative process. I was being told by everyone around me that I was being banjacked, you know, and I kept giving them the benefit of the doubt. And it turned out I was. Um, They went to the high court. They lost. Uh, What they did was appalling. Um, to be honest, you know, there's an they're lucky that they, they didn't end up in prison. Um, that's the way I see it, they disagree. But the most important thing about that dispute, 
and I can't emphasize this enough, is that prior to the dispute, um, Johnny Kelsey and Nafali were hired hands and the band was being run by, you know, the white guys and the people with brown skin were hired hands and were given access really to any of the power the decision making and we now run this band as a collective right and a partnership and that was worth every penny and 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 um you know they tried to turn the dispute into this idea that i'd stolen the band and gone behind their back and made this record without telling them which is absolute rubbish because i was completely transparent i told one of the guys, Martin, who was my longest collaborator, that I was, you know, I wanted to make a record celebrating the 20 years of the Africals. Anyway, it was, it was, it was a very, very unnecessary dispute. We could have sat around a table, come to an agreement. They decided to take legal action. They put up a pack of lies on the internet. I was really badly trolled. I was threatened. I had people saying they were going to turn up and pour pints of piss over me at gigs. I, you know, it was awful. But then the truth gets out there. You know, 99% of Africult fans are really smart, yeah. internet savvy. They realised they realized it was a pack of lies. I was advised not to reply. Don't feed the troll. So it was really frustrating that my side of the story's never been told. Really frustrating. And one day I'd like to put the record straight. Um, and then slowly, you know, you meet people at festivals and they come up and they go, What did happen? And you put your side of the story, you try and be as fair as possible. And then they say, You know, let me buy you a pint because uh, this is a true story. I was the bloke who posted up that I was going to turn up at a gig and pour a pint of piss over you, and I'm really sorry, mate. You know, and then and then slowly, the, the you know, and 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 to be honest, um, you know, the, the the people who just brought their you know brought their line, hook line, brought their pack of lies, you know, bought into it. I don't really want those people as fans anyway. You know? No, well, absolutely. So but we you... were magnanimous in victory. We gave them, you know, we gave them a big settlement, 100K, uh, paid their court costs, even though they'd lost, so they could go off and make this record, Born, which apparently was imminent, even though I hadn't heard a single thing. And I was being excluded from playing on it. And it never saw the light of day. Right. Which, which for a lot of people, a lot of people have just, come to the conclusion the whole thing was a scam i mean that's not what i'm saying no no jeez crazy yeah. no bloody hell it's um it is murky isn't it it is murky You've... well this thing this 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 stuff happens all the time it's happened with uv40 it happened with wishbone ash it did bands split up i mean you know so what you know bands are full of delusional narcissists you know that's usually the singer it's usually the guy who wants to be in the front. Um, you know, there, 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 there's always a kind of melancholy maverick in the back, like me. You know, and 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 this is this is this is kind of absolutely normal stuff. History of rock and roll full of this, but to take it to the high courts and spend the kind of money that they did was just ridiculous. And then lose, and then walk away and not produce any product after creating this huge. Into, well, it wasn't huge. It was actually very, very small. But at the time, it was huge to me. This whole thing about, you know, how they had this album, and I, 
and this you know they they were about to release it and I stabbed them in the back just you know anyway there you go Jesus Jesus at least I've got over it <laughs> at <laughs> least <laughs> I know yeah it's tricky so God did I ask yeah I did ask you the what would you say to an eighteen year old self did I did you get an answer I can't remember now I didn't really get I mean I think my biggest <laughs> I think I think. I've, there's a couple of periods in my history, my life where I've been very naive and I've trusted people. <laughs> and I think with the Afro Celts, I should have, I should have, I mean, there was a, there was a very clear contract that said, you know, once, once we leave Virgin Records, once we leave Real World Records, you know, the name of the band is mine. But I think much earlier on, I should have brought Johnny and Nafali into the collective. And what's happening now is Black Lives Matter. Um, really um, resonates with me because, you know, I was involved in, you know, in, in the very early anti-racist movement when the National Front, I mean, I kind of, you know, I remember in the National Front organising at Chelsea Football Ground, you know, I was involved in all that. But what was, <laughs> what characterised all the, you know, all the marches and all the meetings was there, were, there was very rarely black people there. Yeah. You know, up until now, and and we're now seeing, you know, um, black people, people of colour, organising, you know, and 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 defining their own movement, and that is so important. And you know, you can't have a band called the Africult Sound System without, you know, people of colour having equal power, you know, and the equal rights. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And I should have defined that a lot earlier on, but then I don't think there were people in that band who were just not interested in that you know they really weren't it was all about power and control and money you know not about the kind of principles and ethics that i i you know i still buy in i still part part of the fabric of who i am yeah yes well look Simon, this has been amazing. Look, I have to go at one actually, but thank you ever so much, and um, <laughs> thank you for ever so much for your time and amazing story. Actually, you, you need look. You need to follow Chris, and and uh, Ian, and do your book, don't you? Well, I don't know about a book. I'll do something. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'll, I'll check out that book by Ian. Yeah, I want to publish it. Um, oh, Fitzcarraldo editions. It's quite arty, by the way. It's a very arty. Well, of course, it is. Yeah. Because they're all. Yeah. When I looked at the kind of publishers, they've all got white covers like this. There's, they've yeah, got, yeah. They've got a style. So he talks about the world of Charlie Parker, Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley, John. No, it's Farley. amazing journalist. Look. <laughs> Sorry. Look, I was just. Point... Can you see that? Uh, the question. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. And Prince. So oh, hip, it hurts. So, um... All right, well, look, I'm, I'm, are your interviews usually this long? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, actually. But... <laughs> what are you going to do with it, then? Well, yeah. I think I'll probably... Um, I'll edit a bit for, for the show. And sometimes... Because people quite like hearing the story, actually. So sometimes, you know, the podcast could just kind of be quite, quite loose. But, you know, like our fan, people will kind of go... God, I just heard this interview by so-and-so and I love that band, but I never heard the person talk. Mm. So they really love the story and Alan McGee really loves the story. <laughs> well, I'd love to hear that actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's important. You know, it's important. It's, it's oral, it's the oral history. It's all. Yes, I know. Well, it's interesting because I did love, I mean, I, 
I do not have to go in a second, but because one of the bands I used to absolutely love, and you talked about Cecil, Cecil Sharp, just mispronounced that, but um, was Blow Isabella. Did you ever come across Blow Isabella and the great Paul, Paul James? Yeah, I do know Blow Isabella. Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying, yeah. They just they fused were, a lot of different things and he had the Amazing herd. band, yeah. Yeah. They had Nigel Nigel Eaton and That's the one, the Hurdy Gurdy. He, he, he played Hurdy Gurdy on release. Yeah. The Africa track that we did with Sinead, yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, I, I got an amazing story with Nigel. I think it's Nigel because Paul's the one with the pipes. And Nigel was one of these people who was trying to make a bit more money in his life because he wasn't. So he went into a record shop and said, Look, if anybody ever wants a hurdy gurdy player, I'm your man. And obviously, the you know, it was like an instrument shop. And the person went, Oh, well, just put your cards there. The story is then a few minutes later, somebody from Led Zeppelin, <laughs> someone from the Led Zeppelin kind of like management team, you know, pay over mm. plant and page walked into this record shop. And go, geez, I've just been asked to find a hurdy gurdy play. You have not. I don't even know what one is. And someone said, oh, well, look, this guy's just come in. Here's his car. And they like went, OK, just phoned him, said, look, do you want to come on tour, record the album? By the way, anything you want, the budget completely. Don't worry about a thing. And he, he joins that. That kind of collective of Johnny Kelsey did that tour as well. The, you know, the the my partner in the Africult as well. Yes, because we um, worked with Robert Clark. Yeah, on um, Life Begin Again on the third Africa album. Yeah, yeah, amazing stories. Anyway, look. Okay, um, well, look, that was great. I'm um, hope. Uh, sorry for bending your ears, but that, then again, that's like your ear is there to be bent. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. All right. See you then. Good luck. See you. Bye bye. Bye. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. I bet you never thought it was going to finish, did you? Anyway, fantastic stuff. I hope you made notes because uh, there was a lot to uh, digest there. But that was Simon Booth, or sometimes Simon Emerson. Emerson, um, One-time member of Working Week Weekend and also currently with uh, the Afro-Celt sound system and also, as, uh, as he said, the Imagined Village. Anyway, this has been David Eastor. Yes, you can contact me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. Also, these have all been archived. You can find those on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, do C86show. It's all good. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.